All right, all right. We are returning to our studies in First uh, Samuel. It's been a while since we've been there, so returning to it. Um, I just want to say that I'm I'm just thankful for for you as a church, and um, it's just so encouraging as we prepping to go to Brazil, and different people come and ask, are you excited for it? Or they say that they're praying for us. Uh, we are really um, thankful for all your support and prayers. And I'm thankful, I'm sure that the church in Brazil will be also thankful for you, for lending me for a while. <laughs> so First Samuel chapter 16, we have a, a shift again in our narrative. I titled our sermon today as God's Choice of a King. God's Choice of a King. Seen by the God who sees the heart. I always like comparing English with Portuguese when, in terms of language and seeing different expressions that for us it doesn't make much sense. Obviously now I'm used to it and I use them all the time in my vocabulary and expressions with the verb seen. It's very common. Um, for example, someone says, I'll see to it. They're not talking about their eyesight per se. They're just trying to convey the idea, I'll get it done. <laughs> I'll make sure I'll take care of it. Or you can have a blind person to say, oh, I see. <laughs> How is that possible? Um, or see when I see you, of course. It's <laughs> just different things that, or when someone says, I'm seeing someone, of course you are. <laughs> but they actually mean that they're having some romantic relationship there or interested in someone. Um, so many expressions that people say, um, Believe nothing of what you hear, only half of what you see. And I really like this expression because it really speaks to some of what we're going to talk today that looks can be deceiving. Actually, I forgot my phone. Um, so there was one little story that I wanted to share here with you from Abraham Lincoln which kind of portrays this whole seeing thing. Abraham Lincoln was the famous 16th president of the United States and was famous for his long beard and the top hat. Most of us don't know what he looked like without his beard. But before a presidential election, he didn't have his beard. The Charleston Mercury deemed him as a horrid-looking wretch. He only grew it out because a young girl wrote to him a letter letting him know that, he's, that her brothers thought he was unsightly and would, leave, would only vote for him if he grew out his beard. And so he did. And he did win the election. <laughs> so all these many expressions of seeing and then the looks, um, and why am I bringing this whole seeing thing, because in our chapter, I remember when I first translated this passage from Hebrew to English, I was just like, what the verb seeing is 
repeated in pretty much every sentence. Obviously, our translator, translation translated it differently. For example, it said that God provided for himself a king. Actually, it was God saw a king for himself. So not the use of the scene. So in here, we will see Saul's work for God has ended, but God's work would go on with the people of Israel. The Lord had already sought a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader for his people. In chapter 13, we saw that. This chapter portrays the unfolding of God's plan as it is centered in the person of David. At one level, this chapter presents an interesting historical narrative about how once Saul's, ad, uh, Saul's adversary, adversaries outwitted the king to anoint a royal rival. But the writer's intention was clearly to present more than a historical fact. This chapter is not so much about Samuel and David as it is about God. It portrays the Lord's infinite and effortless superiority to all things human. The ways that the Lord confounded even the greatest spiritual intellects and frustrate all earthly forces that would stand in his way. This chapter provides one of the most fascinating examples of the Lord's inclination to choose, as 1 Corinthians chapter 128 puts it, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things there are. When this story concludes, an unlettered rural shepherd boy has become the Lord's anointed, a brave man and a warrior who sees his supernaturally enhanced abilities to even overpower evil spirits. All right, so open your Bibles to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and I get, let's get it started. That's us, the word of God. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn and with oil and gold. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered and he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with humility in our hearts, we know that we need your help 
to interpret and to apply scripture. I pray, Father, that you will be with our attention span, with our focus. Lord, I know that this passage is so far removed from our reality, Lord. Though we have kings still in power today, this type of language is not very familiar to us, and it's so easy for us to try to tune it down and think this doesn't apply to me. I do pray, Lord, that you would use your word to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, and even guidance, Father, as we as a church come before your throne. Help us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in the previous chapters, uh, chapter 13, and this position of king is lost by Saul's dynasty. Chapter 13, I want to read that again with you. Chapter 13 and verse 13, uh, you remember that Saul has failed miserably in being a king. He didn't obey God or did a partial obedience to God, and he did his own way. So verse 13, he says, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. So that that promise was already made that Saul has lost his position as a king, even though he's going to reign for a while, as David is even prepared to take up the throne eventually. So God withdraws his spirit and send another spirit to torment Saul and undermine his kingship. Prior to this, the Lord announced that he would raise up a man after his own heart to be the new king, one who is a neighbor to Saul and that he is better than Saul, as chapter 15, verse 28 says. So in chapter 16, that individual is now introduced by name. David helps Saul and supports him, and he does throughout the ensuring story. And this is why the narrator exonerates David from any charges of fomenting a rebellion against Saul. As we're going to read in the rest of the chapter, David comes into the court to serve Saul. So my, some might think, well, that it's very serendipitous of him. He's just inserting himself there to become the next king. And we'll see that that's not the case. The dual themes of David's election and Saul's rejection are highlighted in this chapter. God's choice of David is based on David's inner character and predisposition to obey him, not his outward appearance, as impressive as it is, might be. The narrator allows key characters to testify of David's qualification. Saul's servants speaks of David's ability, and Saul himself expresses his pleasure with David at the end of the chapter. So here, I need to remind you that both, both the books of First and Second Samuel, really, it's one book in the Hebrew Bible, was written to encourage. So why, why was this book written? Right? We normally, when we read the letters in the New Testament, we think, why did Paul write this letter to the Corinthians? Why did he write this letter to the Ephesians? So we should ask ourselves, why did... God wrote the book of First Sam, First and Second Samuel, this one book in the Hebrew Bible, in the first place. Well, it was written to the people that was returning from the exile from Babylon. 
they were discouraged. All their kings have failed. They were failing kings. They were, they were sinning kings. So there was written to encourage them, remember your original king, King David. God was searching a man after his own heart and be encouraged as now you look for future leaders so that they don't fall in the same traps that Saul fell and that David has uh, withstand. And even David will fall eventually as well. So for the exiles reading this story, this history, this account serves as a reminder of what genuine leadership entails and a challenge to them to choose and evaluate leaders from God's perspective. As they anticipate the arrival of the Davidic king, they need to realize that he will not necessarily be outwardly impressive. You remember that after the exile, there was no king in Israel until the king came, King Jesus came. And how did Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, describe him in Isaiah 53? He was not someone of good appearance, right? So instead, he'll be one who reflects and models God's character by promoting justice and reaching out to the downtrodden. So our message today is really simple, two points from verses 1 through 13. Um, how God chooses, He's a, uh, David is a man favored by God, and really it, we're talking about here the rarity of authentic godliness. The other point will be uh, favored by man, the persuasion of a reputable testimony. So both the inner character and the outward testimony of others uh, regarding their character. This is really how God chooses his leaders. Let's just start on verse 1 here. We see that Samuel is mourning, and God asks the question, how long will we grieve over Saul? The previous ch chapter ended with Saul mourning over Saul. If you read verse 35, it says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made him king over Israel. That word, to grieve, tr some translations as mourn, refers to a mourning for the dead. Actually, that was interesting. When used in this way in Hebrew, mostly references to people mourning for their deceased ones. For example, you will remember when Jacob um, thought that Joseph was dead. You know, his brothers lied to his, their father, and they brought his clothes in, in shredded pieces to say that he was eaten by a beast. And so Jacob mourned. That was the word described there for his deceased son. And God is saying, you know, Saul is, is as good as dead, and you're still mourning for him. Samuel's remorse is deep and painful. It is clear that Samuel is not part of some conspiracy against Saul, who eventually loses his throne because of divine disapproval, not human betrayal. Samuel really liked Saul. He saw the potential, the man that was used by God to deliver his people. Yes, he was not perfect, but yet he was the king, and Samuel had some attachment to him. 
So we learn here that there is a new start being made by another king. Samuel was directed to fill his horn, an animal horn used as a container for liquids. Um, and I think I showed the picture at some point where you pour the oil to anoint the king. And then he is told to go to Bethlehem, uh, which is five miles from the southwest of Jerusalem. So I have a little map here to kind of show you. Um, so here we have Bethlehem. If you keep going straight out, it's called the, um, the main hill, um, the, patriar the Patriarch's Road. So it goes from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and then Gibeah. This is where Saul's was reigning, and then Ramah is a place where Samuel lived, his hometown. So he would have, to get to Bethlehem, he would have to pass by Gibeah. Um, and so that's why he's asking the question, will, how will Saul not know that I'm going here to anoint a new king? He's going to kill me. So a few things to consider here. Although Jesse's descendant, descent could be traced back to Boaz, how about we open there in Ruth chapter Four. Who is who is Jesse? This is the first time we're hearing of him. And the author didn't spend much time to talk about his lineage, did he? He didn't. As he did with Saul. Saul he'd give a long description. He's son of this, son of this, a man of great of great valor. Uh, there's no pedigree for David. Actually, his descendant is a Moabite, it's a Gentile. Is not even a, she was not even an Israelite. So Ruth chapter 4, um, that's what you hear here, who is, who is related to. Chapter, eight, um, chapter 4 verse 18 says, Now these are generations of Perez. So Perez was born Ezron, and Ezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and Aminadab was born Nashon. Nashon Salmon, and Salmon was born Boaz. Boaz was that man that I think all girls dream about. This is very kind and gentle man. And to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. So Ruth is the great, great, I'm not gonna do the math, but <laughs> you get the point. The absence of genealogy on chapter 16 of 1 Samuel really suggests the ordinariness of David's background in contrast with Saul. But what matters is what God declares. He says that I have provided, and guess what verb is that? I have seen for myself. Uh, so it serves as a key word in this chapter. As I said, it will be constantly repeated. This time, the choice of a king will be based not on Israel's criteria, right? They wanted a king like the other nations. And God gave what? A king like the other nations. On verse 2, we read that Samuel has serious concerns and reservations about implementing the Lord's instructions. The obvious route from Ramah to Bethlehem is through Gibeah. And so there is some danger there. To get from Ramah to Bethlehem, Samuel would have traveled the central ridge route. So all of this region here is mountainous. They really don't have a, um, a valley that you can go through. So it's, it's kind of dangerous too, even geographically. Um, passing through Gibeah and Jerusalem, 
Bethlehem was a small village adjacent to fertile regions, regions for agriculture and more arid regions suitable for raising goats and sheep. So that's why David is a shepherd. Here you have um, the modern town of Bethlehem. I didn't get to go there, but I got to see this part here. There have a lot of Arabs living in that area, and so it's kind of shady for you to go in those neighborhoods. So, but we got to see at a distance, and that's where um, you had all these flocks still grazing the area below the modern city of Bethlehem, as shown here. Saul will ask questions. What do I do when I travel? It is pretty evident that no longer, he no longer displays tolerance toward opponents, but he will react negatively to any threat to his kingdom. Anointing a successor would put Samuel in danger. The Lord provides Samuel with a prudent cover story. He is to go to Bethlehem with a heifer and offer a sacrifice in a special ceremony. That's the instruction. While Samuel is not obliged to disclose all that he is to, to do, he does say that what was true. He didn't lie to him. Now, I know that someone will read this account and think, this is divine deception. Is God trying to deceive someone? But we shouldn't think in these terms. The Lord is a God of truth. He is a God of truth whose word is reliable but he may very well use circumstances to fulfill his and live his, his purposes and to leave his enemies in ignorance. Saul has rebelled against God, God's instructions repeatedly, and he forfeited his right to know the truth. This is not the first time this will happen, and it won't be the last. So let's take a look at David's testimony of God in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Can God use deceit even though he's not deceiving? To, as a judgment to his enemies? Yes, he can. So 2 Samuel, I'm a little under here. Verse 26 from chapter 22. This is a song that David wrote when he was delivered from his enemies. He says, with the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute. And you save an afflicted people. By your eyes, you are haughty, uh, you, but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over wall. As for God, his way is what? Blameless. The word of the Lord is tested, and he is a shield to all who take refuge in him. God is not to blame, but as a judgment, it did come to Saul um, he just needed to be a stoat to fulfill his promises to David. Paul also describes that deception happens to unbelievers. Second Thessalonians is going to happen to unbelievers during the tribulation time here on earth when the church is no longer here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
people, when they're choosing their path of rebellion to God, they choose a path of deception. They choose to believe lies, and God just gives them over to remain in that deception. This is what you're going to choose. That's what you're going to have. Second Thessalonians 2, and verses 11 uh, and 12. Oh. It says that... Um, for there is reason God will send, and he's speaking here specifically on the time when Satan will be deceiving people during the tribulation. He will make signs and wonders. It says, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So they did not believe the truth. They did not act on the truth. Now God is going to give them over to deception. That's what they chose. That's what they're going to have. So they refuse to submit to the truth, and they will now become an easy prey for deception. That is basically what is happening with Saul as well. Even later, he's going to be deceived by a uh, necromancer. Verse 4 in our chapter, going back to our for a verse here. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And then we read here this interesting expression. It says the elders of the city, the people that live there, and the, go the governors, the leaders of the city, was trembling. You may wonder why they were trembling. Well, normally, when Samuel would get to a city and bring sacrifice, probably was a sign of judgment that he would pronounce to them and call them out on their, on their sins. Or maybe the elders were fearful um, with uh, what happened the last time we heard of Samuel. Samuel just cut a man to pieces, uh, the enemy of Israel, that king that was killing um, women and killing children. And Samuel told Saul, you kill that man. He's a threat to us. Um, he killed many people. It was this capital punishment. And so... They might be afraid, like, boy, that's a, a really tough prophet is coming to our way. But it, it, I do see that in a, in a good light. They were receiving him. They were treating him with respect. They were, they were respecting him, his authority. Verse 5, Samuel assures to the elders that he has come in peace and is actually inviting them to get ready to participate in sacrifice in a feast. Um, it asks them to consecrate themselves, and it's basically a, 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 some ritual of purification that they had to uh, do in order to participate of that sacrifice. They, wear, they had to wear clean garments. They had to wash their bodies. They couldn't um, touch any dead body. They had to keep themselves from relations for that time. So Samuel makes sure that Jesse and his sons comply to these requirements when he invites them to the sacrifice. The occasion, obviously, has a special significance, significance to them. This is a major event in our nation, and you have to be holy before the Lord. In verse 6, there is this sacrificial meal where Jesse's sons are introduced to Samuel. And then he looks at the firstborn. I think it's kind of funny that uh, Samuel looks at him and looks at his appearance. It's like, surely that's the one. And he's thinking maybe it's still in the same terms of Saul. He was a 
tall, dark, and handsome dude. Maybe this is, this is another one that the Lord had there for them. And the Lord said, nope, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So um, the whole seeing him, do not look at his appearance, I have rejected him. I put a little chart here. Uh, this is what the, it's a parallel structure in that verse. And it's really interesting on how side by side the Lord puts these two expressions. Samuel looks at the appearance of Eliab, right? He looks at his appearance and the height of his stature. What did the Lord do with him? He rejected him. He says that man sees not, God, not as God sees. How does man see? How does man assess or judges one characters? They judge them by the eyes. So the, our translation doesn't bring that. It says judging by the eyes, which they translated as outward appearance. And that the Lord sees or judges by heart. Uh, now, uh, as far as meaning goes, the eyes are the eyes of the man who is judging, the person who is looking at and judging. And the heart is not the heart of the one, um, the one judging, but the one being judged, not the Lord's. The expression judges by literally means cease to the heart. The Lord judges a man according to the man's heart. That is his internal condition. The Lord has already scrutinized and rejected Eliab because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, that's the more intriguing part. Samuel is supposed to be what? A seer, a prophet. And that was veiled from him. Only the Lord has access to the secrets of the heart, and they are open before him. The heart is viewed as the seat of emotions, the will and motives and reason. It is where our conscience is. A person's heart or mind is relatively inaccessible to human beings, but the Lord is able to probe people's innermost regions, and he assesses people's character. Humans tend to look on the outward appearance when evaluating someone's suitability for a task. That is exactly how they picked Saul, right? They thought, this is how the nations have governors. This is what we're going to have. But now God's in turn is turn, it's God's turn to choose, and he's more concerned what, a, what is in the inside than what is outside. He have, might have accommodated himself to the people's wishes and their standards when they selected Saul, but he will choose Saul's replacement now according to his own standards. And what are those? We just read in verse 14, it says that it was a man according to his own heart, a heart that's willing to submit and to obey God's command, a heart that is humble and dependent on him. Verses 8 to 10, we read that one by one, the sons of Jesse were rejected to be king over Israel. I bet Samuel was pretty confused that that was happening because, well, God told me to come to the house of Jesse, and not one of them are the chosen one because he had rejected every son paraded before Samuel. So in, in an effort to resolve the confusion, Samuel asked to Jesse, he had any more sons? And it turned out that Jesse had this smallest. I appreciate um, the way that our, our translation 
It says, yet there is the youngest. In Hebrew, it literally is the smallest to contrast with the height of Eliab and Saul. He's really trying to make a point. He was excluded from that event. He was tending the sheep. Jesse's description of the omitted son, David, as the smallest places him in a strong contrast with the rejected king. The prophet was predisposed to interpret this description positively and perhaps as an indicator that the small shepherd would indeed be the Lord's anointed. When David was brought in, brought in from the field, his favorable physical traits were immediately obvious. Let's read here in verse 10. Um, actually, verse 12. So he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So David is described as ruddy, either possessing maybe a, a red tinted hair or a bronze complexion. What we know is that David possessed a fine appearance. He was handsome. However, especially in light of verse 7, the physical assets were no proof that God, that David was God's choice. At best, they were irrelevant. What mattered was the young man's heart, which only God could judge that. The Lord removed all suspense from that situation and told Samuel, just anoint him. This is the one. And we see that God empowered him with the Spirit in the same way that he empowered Samuel. Now, we must not conclude from verse 7 that God opposes a beautiful appearance. Because that's what we might think, right? Because God does not like, as if ugliness or repulsiveness constitutes the essentials for God's call. The note in verse 12 about David's robust and good looks should knock that notion in the head. I mean, he just chose a man that is also handsome. For Israel's sake, Yahweh looks on the heart. That's what really matters. The text then contains a warning to prophets and others among God's people. It provides the revelation that we need. It shows us the discernment that we lack. Only Yahweh's wisdom is adequate for directing his kingdom. There is at least one thing that we can see and do. Be aware of the impressiveness of external appearances. And I really take, want to take a moment here for us to reflect on this. We live in a day and age where everything is about the looks. We're always trying to show ourselves as unique, wanting to stand out in a crowd. And personally, I can speak how much that is an emphasis. I remember the first time I came to the U.S., and I was being interviewed by the immigration's office. And he asked me, where are you from? And I said, from Brazil. And he looked at me, mm, the Brazilian woman. They're all talking about how beautiful they are and their emphasis on cosmetics and how much money they spent. So hear me, hear me out. I'm not saying there's something wrong with you taking care of yourself and taking care of your body. But I see at times a tirelessly pursuit for beauty that is borderline idolatrous. I appreciate how much scriptures really encourages 
people, and I'm going to use here women, to focus on the pursuit of a godly character rather than vanity. Proverbs 31.30, what does it say? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. 1 Peter 3, how about we open there? 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 3 and 5. What does it say? Your adornment must not be external. Uh, uh, yeah, your adornment must not be a merely external braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. I think we need to focus on what God values, that inner person. I want to call out here, men of GCF, Woman of GCF, my prayer for you and for me is that we are able to behold and value first and foremost what is most precious in God's sight. This applies to all of us. We all have our preferences. We all tend to gravitate towards others, those who are pleasant to be around, those who are good to look at. And this is especially true when you think even about selecting leaders, right? We want to have someone that is good appearance, that has a presence. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our days today when choosing leaders. They had these super apostles, these people that were very good to look at, and they had a charisma that drew people to themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, he's telling them, you know, I want you guys to pay attention to our ministry. We're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that we'll have an answer to those who take pride in what? In appearance and not in a heart. So these false teachers, the whole emphasis is this is what you look like, what you behave. And Paul is saying, no, really what matters is the heart. For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, that all have died, and he died for all, so that they they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It changes our outlook on how we look, how we see people. What does he say in verse 16? Therefore, from now on, because we have been changed, because we have been saved, because we don't live for ourselves, we recognize people in this way no longer. We don't look at people according to the flesh. We don't look at people according to their physical appeal. We look at no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh yet, now we know him in this way no longer. It changes the way we see Christ. It changes the way we see people. So 
Scripture teaches us that the omniscient God knows human thoughts and motives, and he's able to evaluate, uh, evaluate a person's character. The Lord desires his people to have pure hearts and reward those who possess godly inner character. We have a tendency to evaluate leadership potential on superficial basis, but the Lord looks beyond the surface. He chooses those whose heart are inclined to obey his will. While human beings cannot probe and evaluate an inner person character, God, um, the omniscient God is able to do, they can look for evidence of a godly character. That's why he tells in Matthew for us to watch for people's fruits. In the pastoral letters, Paul exhorts the church to give priority to his spiritual qualities when evaluating or choosing leaders. We would benefit greatly from heeding this warning, like how Pastor Ralph Davis gives us a timely caution, and I think it's pertinent for our church doing our pastoral search. Um, he says, what we seem to want are movers and shakers, the aggressive extroverts, the pushers who meet people well and sell the church in a community, who are smooth in the pulpit. Do we ever ask, how does this man pray? Does he enjoy being with his wife? Can he weep over his own sins? But if this text reveals our need, it also gives us a reason to praise. Sometimes Yahweh must save us from our own saviors. And he's referring to Samuel because Samuel got it wrong. He wanted to still choose someone based on appearance. He says, our self-chosen solutions to God's to kingdom needs or personal dilemmas and how often he has. God, help us in choosing the right people. Oh, beloved, let's pray that whoever the Lord brings into our next um, pastorate here will be able to get past of that outward appearance and see the things, the, the things that distract us, and let's focus on the rarity of authentic godliness. Now, a little bit here toward the end, uh, the second half is favored by man. The God's chosen person is favored by man. There is a persuasion of a reputable testimony. Let's read verse 14. Actually, backtrack 13 and 14 a little bit. I think there, there is a, something in Hebrew that I want to point that to you. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David that day forward, and Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. I want you to notice here what uh, in Hebrew we call, we call a chiasm. It's a, a structure that is repeated. He says, the spirit of Yahweh came upon David, beginning of verse 13, and then says that Samuel leaves him. He leaves David. What happened with the spirit of Yahweh? He leaves Saul. And then the second half is that once he leaves Saul, an evil spirit comes upon David. So he's trying to contrast. He lost the spirit of God, and now there's this evil spirit commentator summarizes this. When Yahweh's spirit came upon David, his anointer left, Saul, Samuel, leaving him in God's hands. When Yahweh's spirit left Saul, an evil spirit came upon him, leaving him in dire straits. 
the spirit coming on David and the spirit leaving Saul are two climatic events that occur in close connection to each other. The departure of the Lord's spirit signals to Saul is no longer God's chosen king, and he will no longer enjoy God's enablement in the battle. The arrival of this evil spirit, which we don't know what it is quite yet, signals that now he's an object of God's judgment and an enemy of God. Now, I know that you're probably curious, what is this evil spirit? Some believe that it's a demon. Others believe it was an angel bringing judgment on Saul. The only other instance that this happened in the Old Testament was God using, we're not going to go there, but in Judges chapter 9, 23, was he using that evil spirit, as the same expression, to judge Abimelech. So this is not the only parallel between Saul and Abimelech, actually suggesting that the narrator is casting Saul in a negative light by associating him with a villain from the past. Rather than describing the spirit's essential character, the term evil probably refers to his mission as one of judgment. The word in Hebrew for evil can refer to disaster or calamity sent as punishment by God. In this case, the spirit is sent to undermine Saul's effectiveness and makes the Lord's rejection of Saul apparent to all to see. So instead of spinning around and asking what this spirit is, we should focus on why that spirit is there in the first place. Angel or demon, God can um, use unfamiliar spirits to serve his purposes. I appreciate how the Old Testament scholar Kaiser explain that on occasion, God's people were not very concerned with determining, sec determining secondary causes and properly attributing them to the exact cause, but under the divine providence, everything ultimately was attributed to him. That's how Job did. He attributed everything to God. He didn't know who was behind it. We must realize that in the last analysis, all penal, penal consequences come from God as the author of moral law and the one who always does what is right. He always does what is right. In any case, his servants offer a solution for his problem. What does his servant say? Verse 15, Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you and let them seek, guess what, see a man who is a skillful player on a harp, and it shall come about that when the evil spirit from God is on you, he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide or see for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful Musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So they offer a solution. Find someone to play music for you. And that person will help you to dissipate your terror. Whatever this spirit is doing to you, he's going to dissipate that. So David is described as a man of valor, suggests that they probably heard that David was a brave man. He fought a lion, he fought a bear, and he won that battle. He said that he was a man of war and that he 
Um, he was very capable in fighting. He was suited for the army. He was a man that was prudent in his speech. It refers to not only David's poetic abilities, but to his discretion. He knows when to speak, and he knows when to stay quiet. He will not, he will not spread news of Saul's condition. That was very important for someone working the court and telling others that the, day, the, the king was going crazy. He needed to be a man of discretion. That's why the servants emphasized that trait. He will not spread news of Saul's condition. He, will, he also is a handsome man. What more can someone ask from a, uh, a musician? There is, however, a sixth and final qualification, and that is the most important one. The Lord is with him. This will be the key for David's career. He's rendered capable of achieving what he will through the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. We read in verse 21 that Saul, then David, came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, that David would take the harp and play with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the spirit would depart from him. I appreciate that in archaeology we can find um, things that we to, to point to some of these things. Normally a harp, when we picture, is that big, huge instrument. I don't know, was it Gretchen that played for our women's Bible study at some point? But normally, the, the ones in the past, they were smaller, something that had um, normally four or eight strings, which may have been similar to the one painted on this pottery here. And this is from the 11th century BC. That's about the same time when David was playing. It's a pottery jug from Megiddo, which is north of Israel from 11th century BC. David's lyre, or kinor, that's how it's spelled in Hebrew, was evidently portable, whereas illustrations from antiquity suggest that harp was a larger instrument, less easily to be carried around. But this earliest stringed instrument mentioned in the Bible and the only one referred in the Pentateuch. So it's kind of neat that that happened. Now, this harmful spirit um, says that it would leave Saul, or Saul would be refreshed, or the, the original word really is he would be spirited uh, in a good way. He would have a relief, such as the coming from passing out of a constrained environment into a freer one. You know, when you're feeling just tight, you just feel relieved. It's not clear how long David stays in court, but apparently... Improvements in Saul's condition permit David to return home from time to time. I think this, all of this is really an irony. That David, being the anointed king, is serving the rejected king. It all intensifies the whole thing that we saw that God provided for himself a man according to his heart. And now the servants provided a man... <laughs> to serve Saul. It, it really speaks of his character now that is being seen by a testimony that is irrefutable. The man has value and others can see it, they attest of it, and they trust it. 
I'd like to close with this application. Today's text, we've learned that external appearances are superficial and easily misled so that no one can accurately perceive what is in another's heart. Indeed, his own, our own hearts, they are deceitful. There's always a need to avoid judging by appearance and instead to judge with the right judgment. How can this be achieved? Only by adopting the judgments of God, whose perception is not hampered by human barrier. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, He searches our hearts. He understands every plan and every thought. This is not the abstract quality of divine omniscience, but the directly personal knowledge by which God sees through the pretext of people. And that we might even delude ourselves and others to fake something. But God knows our hearts. On a broad sense, that gives us instructions how we can evaluate characters of leaders. 1 Timothy 5.24 says that we need to watch closely the life of those in leadership to see if they're living out what they're preaching. And, and we help them. Um, awareness of God's intimate knowledge of us. I think about Psalm 139. We're not going to read there. But how deeply he knows us. And yet he, he loves us. Should sensitize us and allow us to avoid this inner deceitfulness. And instead we should conduct ourselves openly before him. Who we are before God, we want to be before people. I'd like to close our message with the ending verses of, chap of Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And God really uses people that are humble before him. I remember a dear friend of mine that I made in seminary. He's a guy from India. And I just remember, just wetting my eyes, just remembering him. Um, he's been in seminary for probably se between seven to ten years. Um, he didn't have his bachelor, so basically he ended up getting a bachelor instead of a master's, did the same degree. And he was saying, Ronaldo, I remember my whole family did not believe in me. They always kept telling me growing up, he had some learning disabilities. He could not speak well. He did not articulate well his thoughts, um, and failed many times the seminary classes. He had to repeat it many, many times. And he said that his dad kept telling him, you're good for nothing. You're never going to achieve anything worthwhile. And I remember the day that he graduated, we're all celebrating. Breton, you, you did this. Praise the Lord. And he, he read 1 Corinthians uh, 128 that we started with, that the Lord chose the things they are not, and the stupid things of this world to humble those they are not. Um, Ratan graduated. I, I don't know what the class, but you can find his testimony online. It's Ratan Kanala. It's K-O-N-A-L-A -A on YouTube. You can find his testimony, and you will get emotional with it. Ratan today is preaching to thousands in India. I get his update letters, and it's just like, whoa, is this the guy that his dad said he was good for nothing? He was not going to accomplish anything worthwhile? 
Look what God can do with a man that is according to his own heart. Let's, let's pray what Psalm 139 says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in that everlasting way. God, you know our hearts, you know our minds, our desires, what we want to portray ourselves before others. I pray, Lord, that you give us humility. May we live a life of integrity before you and before others. Help us, Lord. We so desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.